Our gracious Heavenly Father, once again we pause to be reminded of the fact that apart from You, we can do nothing. You are the great God of the universe, our Creator, who has created you us for Your glory and so that we might enjoy You in this lifetime and forevermore. And we understand that because of sin, we cannot do that. That apart from Christ, we have no hope to escape Your judgment. And yet it's through the person and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we have hope, that we can live out our purpose of glorifying You in this life and forevermore. Father, remind us of that, of that this morning and remind us of the fact that, Lord, we are people who are here for a purpose. Help us to live out that purpose, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 23 to 27 this morning of Mark chapter 10. Let me read these verses for us. Mark 10, 23 to 27. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. This is the Word of God. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. William Booth, an English pastor, preacher, who founded the Salvation Army in 1865, wrote a shocking fictional piece titled, A Vision of the Lost. A Vision of the Lost. Here's a short portion of it. I saw a dark and stormy ocean, and over it the black clouds hung heavily, Through them every now and then vivid winds moaned and the waves rose and foamed, towered and broke, only to rise and foam, tower and break again. In that ocean I thought I saw myriads of poor human beings plunging and floating, shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. And as they cursed and screamed, they rose and shrieked again, and then some sank to rise no more. And I saw out of this dark, angry ocean a mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy sea. And all around the base of this great rock, I saw a vast platform. Onto this platform, I saw with delight a number of the poor, struggling, drowning wretches, that is, people, continually climbing out of the angry ocean. And I saw that a few of those who were already safe on the platform were helping the poor creatures still in the angry waters to reach the place of safety. On looking more closely, I found a number of those who had been rescued, industriously working and scheming by ladders and ropes and boats and other means more effective to deliver the poor strugglers out of the sea. Here and there were some who actually jumped into the water, regardless of the consequences, and their passion to to rescue the perishing. And I can hardly know which gladdened me most, the sight of the poor drowning people climbing onto the rocks, reaching the place of safety, or the devotion and self-sacrifice of those whose whole being was wrapped up in in an effort for their deliverance. 
As I looked on, I saw that the occupants of that platform were quite a mixed company. That is, they were divided into different sets or classes, and they occupied themselves with different pleasures and employments. But only a very few of them seemed to make it their business to get the people out of the sea. But what puzzled me most was the fact that though all of them had been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. Anyway, it seemed the memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled them at all. And what seemed equally strange and perplexing to me was that these people did not even seem to have any care, that is, any agonizing care about the poor perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their very eyes many of whom were their own husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, and even their own children. A sobering reminder, isn't it, about our mission here on earth, that we have been saved to serve Christ, and that the greatest way to do that is by living in such a way here on earth that attracts people to the gospel And by sharing our faith. And beloved, my hope and my prayer as we begin this morning is that you're keeping in mind that the church, the redeemed of God, we who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, are here on earth to make disciples. And we get our cues from our Savior. And as we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, we've been seeing that our Lord Jesus was about His mission. He was about his mission of reaching people for himself. If we learn anything about the Lord Jesus, is that he was never content to just be normal, to just be comfortable, to be complacent. Christ understood his mission and why he was here. And rather than retreating, what Jesus did was he engaged lost people with the reality of life and death, with the reality of heaven or hell, with the reality of a coming kingdom and eternal life. He was committed first and foremost to his mission for the sake of his father's glory. And he was committed to this mission because he loved people. He loved the lost And here in our passage, we see an encounter beginning last week with this rich young man. This rich young man who came to Jesus, he came to the right person, he came at least initially from a superficial level with the right kind of attitude, with a posture of humility, at least superficially, though that wasn't the case as we saw later on. And he came asking the right question, seeking the answer to the most fundamental question of life. That is, how might I inherit eternal life? And it says in verse 21 that Jesus glazed at this man and he felt a love for him. He loved him. And Jesus, because he loved this man, he loved this lost sinner, he exposed his idol of materialism. This young man was confronted with the reality that if he was to follow Jesus, he needed to let go of trusting in his riches, of trusting in his possessions. He needed to let go of his self-sufficiency. 
that his riches weren't enough, that Christ was enough. And sadly, what did he do? He walked away from the Lord. Devastating account of a man who, from at least from a human perspective, was so close, yet so far away. And now Jesus, on the heels of that encounter with this rich young ruler that his disciples witnessed, he's got some strong words for his disciples in verses 23 to 27, our text this morning. And I want us to look at these verses in various segments. And the first segment is this, the extraordinary teaching. The extraordinary teaching in verse 23. What Jesus has to say to his disciples here is nothing short of extraordinary from at least a perspective of the disciples. Because it's on the heels of the rich young ruler walking away from the Lord's offer of a heavenly kingdom. He walks away from that. He doesn't want to abandon his materialism to follow Jesus. That now Jesus wants to teach the disciples about what just happened. Look at verse 23. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. You see that little asterisk to the left of the word said there? In some of your translations, you might have this. There's a little asterisk there. And that little asterisk signifies a historical present tense verb. It's as if the action is happening in real time before your very eyes. It's as if a video is playing live in front of us. Jesus says to his disciples, this is an important teaching moment for these disciples. And our Lord, being the ultimate shepherd that he is, is not going to allow this moment to pass without leaving a lasting impression on his disciples about what just happened. And notice what he says. How hard. It means with with what great difficulty it is for the rich, for the wealthy, to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is not saying here that rich people can't be saved. What he's talking about here is that is rich people like this young ruler, this rich young ruler who put their trust in these things and rejected Jesus cannot be saved. Those who trust in their riches. Those who trust in their possessions and not trust in Christ. And verse 24 tells us that the disciples were were amazed at his words. They were astonished, shocked, stunned is the idea here. Because conventional thought... The conventional thought of that day was that if you were financially prosperous, if you had great wealth, then you were a sure object of God's blessing. The prevailing thought was that there must have been something you had done right to be rich. There's something you had done right for God to bless you. It's perhaps because of your personal piety, because of your personal faithfulness. That God had made you rich and you've gotten to this point. That was the prevailing thought. And the Lord Jesus says, essentially, not so. Not so. Look at the rich young ruler. Prosperity, wealth, riches, like other things, can become idols of worship, as we saw last week, that in actuality become obstacles, hindrances, hindrances, handicaps to a person 
entering the kingdom of God and being saved from their sins. You see, contrary to popular opinion, even that of today, if you think about it, prosperity in and of itself does not necessarily equal God's blessing upon you. This is the danger of what we know today as the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel fostered and or promoted by individuals like Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Joe Olstein, T.D. Jakes, Creflo Dollar, Paula White, Paul Crouch, and on and on the list goes. False teachers, individuals like that, prosperity gospel preachers and people who proclaim a counterfeit message that tells people that if they follow Jesus, if you become a Christian, if you give to this cause or that cause, namely their cause, then you will be prosperous, then you will be an object of God's blessing and God's favor. Guaranteed. Ironically, what Jesus teaches his disciples here is that this rich man had just forfeited eternal life because of his riches, because he loved his possessions. He owned too much. That, this, this man had turned his back on the eternal treasures of heaven because he loved his earthly possessions too much. He wasn't willing to let go and make the commitment to follow Jesus. And the disciples are processing through this. They don't get it because of the prevailing mindset of the day. Which leads us, secondly, to the emphatic repetition. Notice the emphatic repetition in verses 24 and 25. But Jesus answered, verse 24, again, and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. I mean, he could have said it once. But the fact that he amplifies this, that he repeats his words with added intensity and emphasis, means that he doesn't want his disciples to miss what he just said to them. We do this in parenting, don't we? As parents, we repeat what we just said to our kids to make sure that they understand exactly what they need to obey or exactly what our point is that we're trying to make to them. Repetition is so important. That's what Jesus does here with his disciples. Did you get that? Let me make sure you got the point is the essence of this. And notice how he refers to them in verse 24. Children. Children. The Lord is not trying to be condescending here. It's it's a title of affection for his disciples. He is their spiritual shepherd. And they are his spiritual children. And the reality of it is, is that they are young and immature. They're young and immature. They lack understanding of what just happened. But soon they will be pastors, spiritual shepherds of their own. And they need to understand Jesus's point here of what just happened in this encounter with this rich young ruler. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. How hard, how difficult. And he illustrates what he means in verse 25, if you notice. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. All throughout Mark, we've seen how the Lord Jesus is a master illustrator who uses vivid imagery to make a lasting impression on his listeners, and he does the same thing here. 
This is a sort of humorous picture, isn't it? I'm sure when we read it a little while ago, you're already thinking, what? What is that all about? It can't possibly mean what Jesus just said at face value. Camel going through the eye of a needle? We don't know for sure. But in New Testament times, camels could be as as much as six to seven feet tall. With their bodies ten feet in length. They were large animals who could weigh anywhere from 1,500 to 2,200 pounds when fully grown. Imagine the size of an animal like that. And what about the eye of a needle? Well, it's so tiny, so narrow, that all you could get through it, all that you could pass through it was a tiny, minuscule thread. Our Lord says, Imagine the largest animal in the land of Palestine during this time, a giant camel fitting through the minuscule eye of a sewing needle. Think of the absurdity of such a thing. Such a thing is an impossibility. It simply cannot happen, is his point. It's impossible. This is the point that Jesus is making. As impossible as it is for the largest animal to fit through the eye of a needle, so it's impossible for a rich, wealthy person to find salvation apart from God's intervening grace who trusts in their riches. It's impossible. This is a way of saying in our vernacular, it's impossible. Yeah, that'll happen when pigs fly, right? What do we mean by that? It's impossible. Pigs can never fly. What's up with that? It can never happen. Or that'll happen when hell freezes over. You ever use that? Maybe not as often. Why do we say such things? Why do we use such sayings or slogans? We say those things to express the impossibility of something happening. And so what Jesus is saying here, and the point that he's making to his disciples is what the rest of the Scriptures make. That it's impossible for anyone to earn their way to heaven. And this is the case with this rich young man. No amount of wealth, no amount of possessions, no amount of materialism would earn him a place in heaven. He could not hold on to his idol of riches and expect to receive eternal life. Impossible. Because he trusted in his riches. This is something we need to take very seriously. As Christians living in America, isn't it? Where we are more prosperous than anyone else in history. This is a warning to us of the danger of self-sufficiency. Of the danger of trusting in what we own and our possessions. In fact, there's a powerful warning given to us. If you will turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Go there with me. Paul writing to his young child in the faith, Timothy, who pastors a church on the island of, or on the, in the city of Ephesus. And he writes this letter to instruct Timothy about how to run the church, how to shepherd the church of God. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6, he instructs Timothy about godliness and contentment in the Christian life. Notice what he says, 1 Timothy 6, 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by 
contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Paul is instructing Timothy, one of the key things, Timothy, if you're going to be successful as a pastor, spiritually speaking, is that you must be a godly man who practices contentment. Question, what is contentment? Contentment is a a settled state of happiness, of satisfaction with what God has provided for you. A settled state of happiness, of satisfaction with what God has provided for you. It's the attitude that says, God is enough and he's provided enough for me. And I'm grateful. I'm thankful for that. Paul says, Timothy, cultivate godly contentment. By contrast, look at verse 9. Why should he do this? But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Why? For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul says cultivate contentment. Because if you do not cultivate contentment and the opposite side of that, you are greedy and a lover of money, you got trouble coming, Timothy. And notice the terms that Paul uses. Verse 9, those who want to get rich. That's speaking of this insatiable desire for riches. A sinful desire for them. Verse 10, notice, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And then some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. All of those terms, want and love and longing, are emphasizing this sinful um, idolizing of riches of possessions. It's not that making money or having money or working hard with your hands to make a living is sinful in and of itself. It's the person who loves and idolizes and worships money and possessions and elevates those things above God. Like the rich young ruler. The person who's always thinking about money. Always going after that last penny. Even if it means compromising what God has called you to do. It's the person who elevates possessions and money and materialism above those things that God has commanded you to do. And you even refrain from doing those things that God has called you to do because you're so fixated on making money and possessions and materialism. Materialism has become an idol in your life. You long for it. You want it. You love it. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy. Guard yourself, Timothy. Because what are the consequences? Look at verse 9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and they snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And in verse 10 he says that many have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs because of their insatiable love for money. They're idolizing of it. Some people think money is everything. But actually, money isn't everything. Idolizing and worshiping money can lead to many harmful desires. And in the case of the rich young ruler, as far as we know from the pages of Scripture, 
He forfeited his soul because he loved riches too much. He gave up heavenly, eternal things because he loved his worldly possessions. By the way, you can be poor and idolize money. You can be rich and never be content. Always be this workaholic, this person who neglects your family, who is constantly putting that as the priority above other things that God has called you to prioritize. But look at verse 11. What does Paul tell Timothy? But flee from these things, you man of God. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Flee and pursue. Flee from these things. What things? Greediness. A sinful love of money. Idolatry in that area. Flee from that. Literally, but you, the man of God, these things flee. Present active imperative. This is a command to continually obey in your life. Characteristically, flee, Timothy, from these things. You man of God or woman of God, flee. Our Lord Jesus himself taught on the right perspective of earthly riches in the light of the kingdom of God. Go with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Great text for us as well in the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus speaks on this issue of having a right perspective of money. Chapter 6 and verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters. And that's worship terminology. Worship language there. You cannot serve or worship two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot worship God and idolize wealth or money. Verse 25, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. 
So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What a powerful passage about having a right perspective about wealth and possessions and money, right? And one of the ways that our sinful love and unhealthy longing for possessions and money shows itself, brothers and sisters, is in this state of constant anxiety about what we don't have or what we think we lack. Constant stress. Constant worrying. And that's what Jesus is talking about. If you live in that state, which is a reality for all of us to some extent or another, then that shows that you have an unhealthy, sinful fixation with possessions, with materialism, and that you don't trust God. You don't trust Him to provide for you. And so we must keep a right perspective about wealth and possessions and money. But it's also true for anything else we might elevate above God. You can't put your trust in anything for that matter and earn yourself a place in heaven. Some people, yes, trust in materialism and don't make a commitment to follow after Jesus because they don't want to give those things up. But other people might worship and idolize sex, pleasure outside of marriage. They might actually come to believe that those things, the pursuit of those sinful relationships, will actually get them satisfaction and fulfillment, and that is a lie from hell. You cannot trust in those things and receive and enter the kingdom. For other people, it's the boastful pride of life, success, Career, education, the respect of others, they put their trust in those things and don't make a commitment to follow after Jesus because those things have become more important. For others, yet, it's the right connections, the right friends, the right influences that they elevate above God and they don't want to make a a commitment to follow after Jesus because they don't want to give up those connections that they think are going to get them what they want and need. For other people, it's moralism. Moralism. Trusting in your good deeds. Trusting in something that you do to achieve God's blessings. You see, all of these things can be idols that we elevate, elevate above God. We forfeit the wonderful, eternal reality of a future kingdom with God. And Jesus emphatically wants his disciples and us to know that trust in oneself or one's resources will forfeit eternal life apart from Christ. Well, notice the enormous impact that this has on the disciples in verse 26. All this has an enormous impact on them. Verse 26, they were even more astonished. They were even more astonished and said to Jesus, then who can be saved? In verse 24, the disciples were simply amazed. Here they were, they were struck. They were shocked beyond measure is the idea here. The tense of the verb here, to be astonished, means that they were left in a state of being overwhelmed. They were in a state of shock. How could this be? So much so that notice they cry out, then who can be saved? 
Literally, who is able to be saved? I mean, if, if it's the rich in their society who seem to have it all. It's the rich in their society, the prosperous, who seem to be the most happy, the most joyful, who seem to have freedom from the worries and anxieties of the world. If the rich are unable to enter, then who can be saved? See, they were looking at this from a worldly perspective, weren't they? We too have a tendency to do this, to view things, spiritual realities, through worldly lenses, don't we? Our standard of measure becomes the stuff of this world. He who has the most toys wins type of a mentality. We do that even in our culture today. Again, remember that in their world, to be rich was largely for them a sure sign of God's blessing. And Jesus is turning their world and their mindset upside down and saying, not so. That's simply not the case. Case in point, what just happened? Look at the rich young ruler. He just walked away from a heavenly kingdom because he idolized and greedily loved his possessions. And maybe the disciples are thinking to themselves, wait a minute. You're preparing us to go out and preach this kingdom. If this is how narrow the kingdom is, then who can even enter? Who can be saved if this is how hard it is for people to enter the kingdom? The task is too hard. The task seems too strenuous, too impossible. We simply can't do it if that's the case. And that's exactly where Jesus wanted them to be. To recognize The fact that in their own strength, they couldn't save anyone at all. So there's a lesson here for them, isn't there? Throughout the Gospels, our Lord Jesus was always looking for faith in people. For people who acknowledge their utter inability to save themselves, to help themselves, so that they would trust in Him and come to Him with empty hands of faith, not bringing anything to him, except you're the object of my salvation, Lord Jesus. So what Jesus wants is his disciples to feel, to understand their own inadequacy and their own insufficiency also for the task as well. Remember, in approximately six months, he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to die on the cross. That's where everything is headed. Mark chapters 11 through 16 is going to be all about Passion Week, the last week in the life of our Lord. So he's also preparing his his disciples as well, teaching them something about this situation with this rich young ruler. In fact, in approximately six months, in the upper room, Jesus would say these things to his disciples in John chapter 15 and verse 4. He would say this, abide in me. You want to know how to minister, disciples, after I'm gone? You want to know how to carry about your mission? Abide in me. Remain with me. Be with me. Stay in my presence. Depend upon me. Stay connected to me. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. 
He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The disciples were not only to put their wholehearted trust in Jesus at the point of their conversion, but throughout their journey of following after him, they were to stay dependent, remain connected to him. And even as they ministered his mission on earth after he was long gone, the only way that they could accomplish anything was by trusting in him, depending upon him and the spirit of God who would be sent to indwell them. So this is a key moment for them as well, for the disciples. One day they're going to go out and they need to remember that God would use them as they kept in mind their utter inability and insufficiency to save or minister to anyone apart from the help of God. And brothers and sisters, we need to remember the same thing too. As we witness to people like a rich young ruler or many other sinners who are lost in this world, That we must stay dependent upon the Lord. That we cannot do anything apart from the Spirit of God. That we must bring the Word of God to bear because the Word of God has the power to change a person's heart. Nothing that we do whatsoever. And so now notice, as they see their weakness, as they see their powerlessness, and as we see ours, God can now use them and use us. Look finally at the empowering lesson in verse 27. The empowering lesson. More than anything else, this is what Jesus wants them to remember. Verse 27, looking at them. I love those words in the Gospel of Mark. I wish I would have been a fly there watching this as Jesus fixes his eyes on his disciples to get their attention. This is what he doesn't want his disciples to miss right here as they feel their sense of inadequacy. Here's what he wants to leave them with. Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God. Why? For all things are possible with God. What are the all things are possible with God there? I think first and foremost he's speaking about salvation from sin. Salvation from sin. That it's impossible for people to save themselves. You know why? Because the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 that we are spiritually dead apart from Jesus. That we do not respond apart from Christ prior to coming to know Jesus to any spiritual stimuli. We are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. We cannot do anything to save ourselves. Absolutely nothing to save ourselves. And not only that, but the Bible also tells us that we can't be saved by the good deeds that we do, by any good works of our own. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. But then he goes on to say, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The supernatural act of God. Only when God intervenes can somebody come to know Him in a personal way. It's not our wealth. 
Not our riches, not our prosperity, not our good deeds, not our religious activity or church going, not your great education, not your great job, not your successful career. None of those things can gain you any favor before God. You cannot save yourself. It is impossible with man to be saved. Jesus' point is you can't do anything to redeem yourself. But notice verse 27, but... Here's another great contrast, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. I love that. God is to be their hope. God is to be their hope. How does God make salvation possible? Well, God provides the the power for salvation, doesn't he? If Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 speaks about the fact that we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 4 says that God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God is the energizing, energizing power to raise a spiritually dead sinner to life. God does that. Romans 1 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Salvation from what, I ask you? From our sins and from God's coming judgment for our sins. Because the arrow of His wrath is aimed in the direction of every single sinner who has not trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's headed your direction. And what Paul says in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation, to escape the coming judgment of God for your sin, lost sinner. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross, it's a synonym for the gospel, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I want to remind you this morning that God has made salvation possible for you if you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you are not right with God this morning. God has made salvation possible. How has He done that? Through the atonement of His Son, the One who came, the God-man who lived a perfect life, the perfect life you could never live on your own, internally and externally. The one who came and suffered and died on the cross in your place for your sins, taking upon himself the fullness of the Father's wrath for your sins. And the one who rose from the dead three days later, conquering sin and death, proving that what he said about himself was true by virtue of his resurrection. This Christ... God has made salvation possible through the atonement of Jesus alone, the only way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through the Lord Jesus Christ. With God, all things are possible. Christ has provided the the righteousness that you don't have. What did Christ do? On the cross, he took upon himself our sin, upon himself and our punishment. And in turn, he gave us his righteousness. Who have trusted in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says these beautiful words. He, God the Father, made him Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Our sin placed on Christ. Christ's righteousness placed on us. That's what we call, as Christians, amazing grace. Amen? Amazing grace. With man, salvation is impossible, says our Lord Jesus. But with God, salvation is possible. Possible. Now listen, this lesson is true for all of the Christian life. Not just salvation. In our Christian journey, God makes the impossible possible. Amen? He makes everything possible that is according to His will, that is. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And the context there is Paul wrestling in his life with prosperity on the one hand, poverty on the other hand. And Paul says, God has taught me the secret of being content, of trusting Him. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So are you lacking this morning in financial provision? Trying to figure out how you're going to provide for your family? I want to remind you that if you are in Christ Jesus, God will make the impossible from your perspective possible. He will provide. You can trust Him. 2 Peter 1.3 says that God, by His divine power, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We have everything we need to succeed and live victoriously in the Christian life, no matter how big the hardships are that we are experiencing in our country today. We have everything that pertains to life and godliness. Ephesians 3.20. We find this amazing statement. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Paul is extolling the great power of God. And then he says this, according to the power that works within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul says, you know that that power whereby God is able to do magnificent things, including your salvation? He's giving you a measure of that power so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God's calling. Ephesians chapter 4, 4 through 6. Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Listen, you feeling weak this morning? Inadequate? You're feeling like you can't give anymore? That you got nothing left in the tank, especially with the type of year we've had? With one crisis from a human standpoint after another, it seems, and they're nonstop? Are you feeling weak this morning? I want you to actually rejoice in that sense of weakness. Rejoice in that sense of weakness because it is good to remember for us our utter inability to do anything that God has called us to do in our own strength, in and of ourselves. It's it's a good place to be. To feel your weakness and inadequacy. But don't stay there. Don't stay there. Remember what Jesus says here. With man or woman, all things are impossible, beginning with our salvation. But with God, all things are possible. 
in your sanctification, in that ongoing process of becoming like Jesus as a believer, it is possible as you submit and yield yourself to the Spirit's leading and the Word of God for you to overcome that struggle against that besetting sin or sins in your life. Because the Spirit of God lives in you. Because you have everything that pertains to life and godliness through the Spirit and the knowledge of Christ that has been put into you. It is possible this morning, if you have a strained or broken marriage, for God to restore your marriage so that you actually experience the grace of life that is marriage. It is possible. If you seek the help of God and the help of the church. It is possible, brother or sister, if you are experiencing physical trials. Every day you seem to get up and you don't feel well. It seems like just it takes a long time just to get prepped for the day. And I encourage you, if God has allowed you to be in that state, it is possible for him to allow you and empower you to live well under that trial and to learn the wonderful lessons he would have for you. You will sustain your faith through it all. What about salvation for our loved ones, family members, extended family Friends, co-workers, people that we love, neighbors. Is God able to save those people? Absolutely. We should just stay faithful, stay the course. Live out the gospel before people. Continue to share our faith. This is so crucial for us to remember also that God is able to do anything in the light of our mission, isn't it? Listen, if God can do anything that we need, then we need to remember today that while the world seems unreachable and evil seems so strong, so extreme, no one is beyond the reach of Almighty God awakening a spiritually dead sinner to life. I want to remind us of that this morning. Just look at just look in the mirror later today. From a human standpoint, was it possible that you, sinners saved by grace, would have ever come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Impossible. And yet here you are listening to the Word of God. God has done the possible in your life. And so let us be faithful, beloved, to our mission of making disciples in our homes, in our neighborhood, in our workplace, and every opportunity that God has given us. Be sensitive to God's divine appointments, to those opportunities that he's given you in your context and circles of influence to share the message of Jesus. Keep praying, keep witnessing, keep living out the gospel to display the beauty of Christ to a lost world. He can do the impossible. And most importantly, can I appeal and exhort to you who are not right with God today? I want you to know that you cannot save yourself. Like that rich young ruler. Maybe for you, you don't trust in materialism, but there are other things that you are trusting. What is that sin or besetting sins that are keeping you from making a commitment to follow after Jesus? What could be worth your soul being lost forever and ever and ever away from the presence of your Creator? What will it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? I want you to know today that God 
wants to save you and can save you, you can be made right with God today through Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be saved. That you might escape the judgment of God. Seek the Lord in a time when He may be found. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Isn't it enough to see what's going on in our world right now? And people idolizing self and destroying others and exploiting others. That's what sin brings about. And ultimately, eternal death. And those people will be judged someday apart from Jesus Christ. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Let us learn a lesson from the rich young ruler. And not follow after his terrifying example of walking away from the very one who could satisfy his soul, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the amazing reminder this week, especially for all of us, that when we are weak, you are strong. Father, thank you for the fact that with you all things are possible. And we know that if there are things that haven't happened in our lives as we expected them, then Lord, you who are infinite in wisdom, we can trust you and we can wait upon you. Father, help us to be people on mission. Help us to be people who do not take our salvation for granted and who, like that opening illustration, become hardened to people that we see in our world who do not know Christ. Oh, Lord, help us to be people who are used by you as instruments in the hands of the Redeemer. Lord, help us in our sanctification, in this ongoing journey of becoming more and more like Jesus, of following after Christ. Help us to look to you to be God-dependent people, that we would not be self-sufficient, that we would truly be able to say in the power of the Spirit, God is enough. You are enough. Help us, Lord, by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.